When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Sympathy doesn't actually help anybody. You know, sympathy makes us feel good. Oh, I feel bad for you. And then I go back to my daily life. But that doesn't help them. Clarity helps other people. Empathy is a clear vision of what they're seeing, how they feel about it. And that's just that's just empathy. It's completely understanding, with no judgment, where the other side's coming from. I've been looking forward to having Chris Voss as a guest, even though to a lot of people he seems like an unlikely person to be talking about empathy and communicating, because he's a leading hostage negotiator. It turns out that his stories about negotiating for the release of hostages is just what we need to hear for our everyday lives. Chris, thank you so much for talking with me. You know what? What this is really this is going to be good because you've been spending your life negotiating for hostages, which turns out to be pretty much the same thing as trying to communicate with somebody. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so. The thing that hit me first was you have the same idea about empathy that I do when I try to help people communicate better, which is you use the understanding you can have of somebody else in a tactical way, right? Tell, tell me a little bit more about that from your point of view. Yeah, you know what it is? It's, it's emotional intelligence, and, and, and we all have it, if you will. And I'm not surprised to hear that, that you and I are in sync on it. Because if you've been communicating with people for a long time, it's what you come to, to to learn to how best to get along with people, how to have great relationships, how to be productive. It's how people are wired. What, what about your experience? I mean, just just give us a rundown in the briefest way of, were you the top negotiator for the FBI in terms of hostages? Well, in, in terms of, uh, I think I was number one on international kidnapping, which there's kind of two different hostage negotiations. You know, there's a contained, uh, where you know where the bad guys are and you got them surrounded and kidnapping, you don't know where they are and you don't know where the hostage is. That's really, <laughs> interestingly enough, that's much more of a business transaction. It sounds like a really impossible situation. You don't know where they are. You don't know, you, you don't know much about the hostage. You often don't know if they're even alive, right? Well, that's the first issue. You gotta, first of all, you got to find out if they're alive. Secondly, you got to find out if they're alive and the guys you're talking to have them. <laughs> so somebody could just call up and say... Uh, or leave a note, say, I got your mother. 
and she's just on a bus trip. Uh, you know, and there's versions of that that happen on a regular basis. There's no shortage of college students who have gotten highly intoxicated in Mexico and lost their cell phones and have the finder of the phone in a bar realize, you know, it's going to be at least eight to 10 hours before this kid wakes up. I can call their family and tell them I've got their kid and I might be able to shake $10,000 out of them in a wire transfer before the kid wakes up from the hangover. You, you get, you get in that, your line of work, you get experiences most of us can't even think of, can't imagine <laughs> it. I mean, to find a guy's phone to try to get 10000 from it. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some crazy stuff. In the course of it, I'm really uh, fascinated to see the role that empathy plays. Your version of empathy is, I, I think, is very much what my definition of empathy is. A lot of people think empathy is feeling sorry for somebody or feeling compassionate for them. It's, what, how do you define it? So Daniel Goleman said there's three kinds of empathy, and one of them is cognitive, which is just completely understanding where the other side's coming from. And it doesn't have anything to do with sympathy or compassion. It's just complete and total identification. I, I completely get where you're coming from. I, I, I don't agree with it. I don't disagree with it. You know, as an example, you know, when uh, we had a trial in New York, a terrorism trial in, in civilian court, not military court, and the vast majority of our witnesses were Muslims and they testified voluntarily. And we got them to testify voluntarily because I'd sit down with them and I'd say, you know, you guys feel like there's been a succession of United States government for the last governments for the last 200 years that have been anti-Islamic. And they'd go, yeah. Now, I never mm. said that was true. <laughs> you, you expressed what they were feeling and thinking. Yeah, I never, I never agreed. I never disagreed. You know, I, I chose my words very carefully. I said, you guys feel this way. And that's just that's just empathy. It's completely understanding with no judgment where the other side's coming from. Now, that sounds really innocuous. It's actually a lot harder to implement. Like when I first learned it on the suicide hotline way back when they said, you know, you don't help people who are in quicksand by getting into the quicksand with them. That does them no good. In other words, you don't want to get swamped by your feeling that's similar to theirs. You don't want to. Yeah. Suffer, suffer in the same way they're suffering, but you want to understand it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sympathy doesn't actually help anybody. Sim you know, sympathy makes us feel good. Oh, I feel bad for you. And then I go back to my daily life. Well, that doesn't help them. You know, it was, it's kind of self-satisfying. It doesn't help the other person to be sympathetic. Actions help people. Clarity helps other people. Empathy is a clear, clear vision of what, what they're seeing how they feel about it, not agreeing with them. And you don't need to contradict them because that's not part of seeing what they, what they see, right? If you contradict them, then you're into an argument about their vision of the world. Exactly. That's a critical point. That's a, that's a really important aspect of it. You know, you remind me of a personal situation. I had my mother. My, my mother, unfortunately, was schizophrenic. I mean, this is an example of how this works in so many different areas of life. And she, her, her, her body was failing, and I called an ambulance and got her to the hospital. And she saw two doctors come in to examine her, and she said, I can't let them examine me. I said, why not? She said, because they're devils. And now I'm stuck. If I take her back to her house, she's liable to get even sicker and die. Wow. 
I can't tell her they're not devils because that'll just make her believe they're devils even more. Right. And maybe she'll start thinking I'm one. Right. So just on the spur of the moment, I think I came up with something you might have come up with. I said, I'm not going to deny what you know to be true, but I bet if you act as though they could help you, I bet they could. She said, really, you think so? I said, yeah, why don't you try it? She said, okay. She let them examine her. Now, so that worked. But if you were in that position, what do you think you'd have done? Maybe you'd have made it even sure that it would work. Now, see, first of all, that was brilliant. I mean, you're pr- about two steps ahead of me. <laughs> I mean, what my, my initial reaction would probably have been like, wow, this is really scary for you. To say to her. Yeah. Yeah. Because my, you know, what I hear first is uh, from the suicide hotline, from the hostage emo- uh, negotiation, even from the business deal days, these days, we tend to go after the negative feelings first to see if we can diffuse them simply by calling them out. Mm. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to call if there's an, if there's an overriding negative influence there, I'm going to, I'm going to start by calling it out because I'm going to dissolve it at least a little bit with that. And so that would be my first reaction. And you just actually, you just sort of did that. You, you had straight recognition of it. Didn't dispute it in any way, shape or form. Just let it lay there and then move to the next step. Gave her which, something to do. It gave her control, actually, which is something you recommend. Yeah, control is a critical issue. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much people settle down once they you get them to feel like they're in control. So, yeah, that, that, critical. Well done. <laughs> you could have been a hostage negotiator. <laughs> Thank God I'm not. There's going to be a string of dead people all across the world. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'd be so good at it. But... What we're talking about, I think, is an example of what you boiled down into wanting to get the other person to say that that's right, yeah. not to say you're right, which yeah. is such an interesting distinction. I didn't get my mother to say you're right. She said, you think that'll work? She was talking about that, it. Not, yeah. She wasn't under my control with saying, I'm giving in to you, you're right. Yeah. What what's, what else is wrong with your right? Why why don't you want them to say that? Well, you know, I mean, uh, one of two things is happening. Um, it's resignation on the other side's part in some way, shape, or form. It's them feeling resignation, capitulation, loss, which is none of those things are good, which means they have negative residue, and they're probably going to fester and come back to haunt you at some point in time. There's always going to be a bit of resentment there, no matter how well they control it. And, and that's just not good. That's, a, that's, that's, that's something toxic that gets planted. So, so just so to make it really vivid, what would be an example in a conversation with, say, a hostage taker where you're trying to get them to see something that they're not paying attention to and you want to get them to say that's right? How, what would, what would, how would that dialogue go? Well, uh, I, I give you I give you one of the examples from a book, one of my favorites. Um, we're in a kidnapping negotiation with a terrorist, uh, a- absolute sociopath on the other side. I mean, what I love to ask people a lot of times is, does empathy work on sociopaths? And and this guy was a sociopath. So that would answer that question. Does it work? It works. We needed him to say that's right. 
And his justification for the, the $10 million demand for the hostage was 500 years of oppression in the south of the Philippines, from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans, violation of fishing rights, economic harm. You know, of course, which immediately begs the question, what does an American running around the Philippines in 2000 have to do with what happened 500 years ago? Right. There's no logic there. But you, you're, instead of pointing out the illogicality of his taking an American hostage for something that happened 500 years ago, you said something that he could agree with. What did you say? Well, finally, you know, and we tried to point out the illogic of it. We oh, spent a couple of months and got absolutely nowhere. I mean, every mm. logical approach, every sneaky, clever approach we tried just fell flat on its face. This took months? You were The guy was a hostage all this time. Yeah, international kidnappings with terrorist groups generally take quite a while. And, and you were trying logic and it wasn't working. So then what did you finally come up with? Well, finally, we just said, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to feed back everything he said. All this nonsense, all this illogical, illogic, ridiculous justification. We're going to summarize it all because we, all we want to do is get this guy to say that's right. And, and we were at the point where we were stalemated, so we were willing to do this because we tried everything else. Everything else had failed. And I was coaching the negotiation. I, uh, every, every international kidnapping I worked, I coached. I coached a family member. I coached a friend. I coached an official. Oh, because you wouldn't be personally on the phone. They would only want to talk to a family member. Is that it? Right. There's a strategic advantage to having a non-professional on the phone. Ah. Uh, so what, what did you finally start to coach them to say? Well, I coached them. I coached this guy up to say, you know, feed it all back to him. Tell him they're holding the American because of 500 years of oppression, because of the Spanish, the Japanese, the Americans, because of atrocities because of war damages because of violation of fishing rights i mean there was a really long list and justifications for the injustice and i just said repeat it all back summarize it over summarize it right this is why you're holding him hostage because of all these abuses and what happened what was, what was the reaction to that well after after we got done with our summary uh there was dead silence on the phone for a couple of moments and then the sociopath on the other side, the terrorist, said, that's right. He actually said the words you were looking for. Word for word. Word for word. And then what happened? Well, we sat there in silence for a few moments. And then my guy said, why don't we talk again in a couple of days? And the terrorist said, okay. And they hung up the phone. And the ransom, the $10 million ransom demand was never mentioned again after that conversation. It went away. It went from $10 million to zero when the terrorist said, that's right. Mm. And, 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 and how long did it take to get the hostage back? Well, they, they, they floundered around. with a, they, Then they came up with a couple of non-substantive demands. They wanted to have a Malaysian politician mediate, which we just didn't agree to. And what ended up happening just a, a couple of weeks afterwards, the terrorists became so disorganized, the American just walked away. Oh. <laughs> All from that's right. <laughs> All from that's right. Now, here's the crazy part. About three weeks after the American walked away, I was back in the Philippines, and I connected back up with the guy that I coached. And he said, you're never going to believe who called me on the phone. And I said, I, you know, I don't, I don't know who called you on the phone. The terrorist called him on the phone and said, 
have you been promoted? You're really good. They should promote you. Wow. And he hung up. So even though he knew he was being maneuvered, he didn't. He he just respected the fact that the guy got him to a position that was more to his to his benefit. Yeah, he was okay with it. He was calling to pay his respects. And that's amazing. And that that really is tuned into empathy, isn't it? Because yeah. you you got to know what they're going through. You have to see what their perspective is before you can repeat back to them what their perspective is. Yeah, you know what? And it's not that hard. The hard part is when we don't agree with it. We want to say, don't feel that way, or that's not fair, or you know, you're wrong. And you mentioned you, that earlier. Which is not really listening. If all if all we respond to is our objection to what the person is saying rather than really responding to the person and what they're saying and feeling, then we're not really listening. We're waiting for our chance to yell. Exactly. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you didn't say you're right. I would have have lost the conversation at that point. You say an interesting thing in your book that you you want to hear no you you, you uh, want to hear no more than you want to hear yes which is sort of counterintuitive what you want to hear no early on oh, you don't want to hear it at the very end right no i you know i i, I love it all, all along the way i mean people when people say no they get clarity they feel safe they feel protected and i guess they feel more in control too exactly thousand percent. I mean, uh, I, and I'm going to want my counterpart to feel in control because when they feel in control, they actually think more clearly. They're not scared. They're not concerned. They're not distracted by worrying about hidden traps. Hmm. So what's so good about hearing no? What, uh, what, what kind of no do you want to hear? I'll take every question that I would normally want to hear a yes to, and I'll just flip it so that the no advances my objective. So instead of saying, do you agree? I'll say, do you disagree? So give me a whole sentence with that in it so I get a sense of what you mean. All right. So um, I'm trying to close uh, a client for sale of tickets to a negotiation training we gave a couple months ago in New York. And they're wavering back and forth between three and seven tickets. And we only got three tickets left. So I sent them an email and I said, are you against making a commitment for three tickets now? Are you against making a commitment for three tickets now? In exactly. other words, you could have said, would you make a commitment for three tickets now? But he said, are you against it? So that he, what, why, why can't he just say, yes, I'm against it because I don't want three tickets. I want seven tickets. Because I need a, I need a clear and distinct answer. And plus people always hesitate before they say yes and think through all the implications. Ah, so you get a no more easily, right? No, is it's easy for us to say no because we feel we're fending off this attack. Right, right. And then also, like, a guy might say, uh, maybe, I want to think about it. Hmm. But if they say, if the answer is no, but I want to think about it, they'll say no, but here's what I need to know, and they will instantly give me what all the problems are. I see. So you they, they open up to you when they when they have a no as an answer. But it's carefully constructed. It's constructed so that you're leading them toward what you want them to be engaged by. Yeah, I really am. 
And, and, and I'll tell you, the other thing I sent, and I did this both this in an email, it was a two-line email. The second line was, are you against, because I needed the money that night. Uh-huh. And I said, are you against paying for the tickets before the business day starts tomorrow? Now, what if they are against that? I don't, it seems like it's too easy to say yes to that. Yeah, but it seems like it is. But the reality is, most people would rather have their fingernails pulled out than say yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting psychological insight into most people. When you talk about getting a no from the other person and that being a valuable thing, it's a little different, at least on the surface, from what we do in improvisation, which, where the, the mantra is, yes, and. I say yes to you, to whatever you come up with, I say yes, and I build on that. So in one sense, the no seems to go against that, but I can, I can see a, a, a way in which it's not. What, what's, your, what's your reaction to that? Uh, my reaction to it is both no and yes are vastly different words depending upon which side of them you're on. Hmm. Meaning what? So, well, if I, you know, we love to hear yes. It's a very encouraging thing to hear. We're very concerned about saying it because we're worried about what it, it's, what we've let ourselves in for. So when you're doing a yes and improv, it's very encouraging for everyone that's participating because everyone feels wonderfully encouraged and they're probably going to create a better product. Mm. And then the critical word is the and, of course, because most people are used to hearing yes, but. Right, exactly. Which is wrong. I think that what you talk about in all of these aspects of negotiating and bargaining and that kind of thing is very much like the yes and in improv. In improv, somebody says something to you in a scene and you don't say, no, that's not what it is. You say, yeah, that's right. And look at this, look how interesting it is over in this part of it. So you acknowledge the other person's reality and you add to it as a partner, not as a butt-saying person who alters their vision of reality. And that sounds like exactly what you're doing. I would agree. I, and, and, and forgive me, but that's right. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back, Chris gets into something dear to my heart. The question of not just what you say, but how you say it. I think about this all the time because as an actor, a line of dialogue can mean so many things. Depending on the tone, the same words can be welcoming or off-putting. Stay with us. I mean, stay with us. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. 
At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Chris Voss. Your book is full of nuances, which makes it very interesting, the difference between that's right and you're right at first glance, doesn't seem like a huge difference. But when you talk about it, it's a huge difference. And there are, there are nuances that you talk about that really interest me because a tremendous amount of what I think I've learned about communication has to do with the tone of voice. What you present non-verbally, both tone of voice and body language, for instance, you you place a lot of emphasis on saying certain things that are good to say, but not in the wrong tone of voice. Can you give me a couple of examples? Here's a great chance, because when I was reading your book, I couldn't quite tell what tone of voice you were talking about. But now <laughs> uh, you can really be clear about what, what you mean by the right tone of voice. Well, and, and as a general rule, um, you know, positive, uh, smiling tone of voice like a, a voice of regard um, is always going to be good because it actually causes a change in the brain and the mindset of the other person. You're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Neuro- neuroscience shows us that. So, so I, don't, I don't know if you're doing it now, but I'm going to close my eyes and tell me something in that tone of voice. Let's say, Alan, you know, Talking with you is just a delight. All right. How much of my money do you want? <laughs> I feel very positive. Thank <laughs> so and there, there were some specific things like uh, you repeat what the person is saying. Like, what, what, how am I supposed to do that? Your boss comes in and says, I need 50 copies of these, this contract in an hour, and and you say, I'm sorry, how am I supposed to do that? Something like, is that an example? Yeah, the, those words you could say two different ways. Like, you could say to your boss, how am I supposed to do that? Yeah. Like, you know, it's kind of a dumb idea. <laughs> That's what that tone of voice is. So you could right. say, how am I supposed to do that? Uh-huh. And that tone of voice says, you're asking for help. Like, you'd right. do it if you could. Yeah. But you can't, and you're asking for help. And you get a, and the exact same words, two different deliveries. The second one, the boss is going is to stop and think, which is the purpose of saying that. Well, I have to tell you, I was tremendously impressed with your book because point after point, the way you use empathy as a tool, the way you listen actively, the way you get the other person to feel in control, and the way you find the importance of how similar you are to the other person, and the other person warms up to you because they feel similar and common, they feel a commonality with you. 
all of these things are also in my book, and it's impossible to have put things in your book that are in my book by coincidence. So obviously you stole it from me, and I'm going to sue you. <laughs> I'm suing you. Now, <laughs> we can settle this right now if you want. I, I'm open to it. I mean, there's no reason to go to court. It'll cost you a huge amount of money. Oh, my God. You're taking me hostage. <laughs> well, not really. It's just, just your money. So, <laughs> so um, how much are you willing to give me to make up for this? How much you need? How much do I need? I need, well, yeah. I, need, I need to be made whole because you obviously took money away from me with your book sales. They could have been buying my book instead of yours. So how much, how much are you going to offer me? Well, how about if we jointly, jointly collaborate and get even more book sales together? Yeah, but I, I got my picture on my book. Well, I'm nowhere near as handsome as you are. You got a definite <laughs> advantage there. No, what I mean to say is I came up with all that stuff. I invented it, and you, uh, you stole it. So you owe me not only for the loss of the book sales, you owe me for the indignity of having been stolen from. It feels very bad to be stolen from, so you owe me an awful lot of money. I'd, uh, shall we st let's start at a figure? What's the figure? It, it, it sounds like I've offended you. <laughs> yeah, you have offended me to some extent. That's true. Yes, the answer is yes to that. But it, but it sounds like you don't really care about that. Well, why would you say that? Well, you, you're so focused on the money. I mean, you know, money can never make anybody whole if it's an offense. I mean, it doesn't sound to me like it's, I'm not sure that it's, how can you say it's money and how can you say it's offense? How do those two things add up? Well, it, it's pretty established in the, in the law that if somebody uh, takes your arm off, they owe you a certain amount of money for it. It sounds crazy, I know, but everybody does it that way. What else? What are you going to do to make me feel better? You already took my ideas. So right? it's only a matter of you feeling better? No, no. The only way you can make me feel a little better is to give me the money. So let's say you give me $25 million. Uh, okay, a dollar a year. <laughs> So what makes you think, how am I supposed to live that long? <laughs> See, I can agree to any amount. It's getting the money out of me. By the way, this is, this is liable to take forever because I read your book. <laughs> and you're smarter than me to begin with. No. <laughs> now you got me. Okay, let's say a dollar a year. <laughs> okay, we got a deal. <laughs> Plus, I get to use your picture in a promotion of my book. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You can't come out of this even better than you got into it. Uh, there's always a better deal for both sides. I want a better deal. I want you to be happier than you, you ever You're telling me. the hostage taker you want the hostage back and you want an extra 50 cents. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I want, I want the bank robber to give me an airplane. <laughs> Did the, you know what's one? Well, that was fun. Thanks for doing that with me. I would. I, I, I don't know. Did I read on your face a little panic when I started to started to put you through it? You're like, all right, he wants a, he wants a boxing match here. I mean, I don't know that I'm warmed <laughs> up for this boxing match. I get you ready to go. I bet I bet you're ready to do it on a moment's notice because the wonderful thing about what you write about and what you've studied for decades is that it's not just hostage negotiations or. Uh, talking to bank robbers, it works with everybody. 
You tell a story about your son. I don't know if you want to mind getting into that story. Yeah. As a football player, what was what what was the problem with that? Yeah. Well, you know, the kid was the kid was a lineman, and you know, if, if there's one thing linemen like to do, it's hit things. They put their heads down. They hit everything they see. Well, actually, that's why you know I used to tease them all the time because. First of all, being a lineman is an exceptionally complicated job. But I used to say that's the reason why you guys wear different color uniforms. So you know not to hit each other. You hit the guy in the other uniform, plus don't hit the guy with the stripes on. Because you just like rules. to hit people. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, then they, and they switched him uh, from lineman to linebacker. And now I, I don't know the difference. What's the difference? Well, he's a defensive player. They, you know, it's sort of a literal translation of the position because – the linebacker stands in back of the line. He backs up. He, he backs up the people that are hit. When he catches people coming through, is that it? Exactly right. He's and there's really only one person who wants the linebacker to catch, and they want him to catch the ball carrier. Hmm. Which means the rule is don't hit anybody but the ball carrier. Right, but but with your son hitting everybody, <laughs> he's hitting everything he can see. He wouldn't stop. I mean, if something gets in his way. I mean, he he's like a mountain dog. He he is gonna he's gonna crash into that, and then he's gonna crash into something else. And both of it, both his coach at the time and me are saying, like, look, don't do that anymore. So what did you, you do? Know? How did you turn him around, or did you? Uh, finally, I said, to, I you know, I, I said to myself, what's going through this kid's mind? And I took him off to the side and I said, you think it's cowardly to get out of the way of somebody's trying to hit you. You think that dodging a block makes you less of a man. Hmm. And he, he put his head down a little bit and he, and he whispered, that's right. You got that's right out of him. I got a that's right out of him. And he started dodging blocks the very next day. And that was enough. Because he, 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 I could, when I read that story, I thought, well, what if he said, that's right, I think it's manly to, to do that, that's my job, and I want to be a man, so that's what I want to do. Somehow, there must have been something about the way you said it that made him put his head down and change his way of working. Well, it, what it is, it's a moment of clarity. I mean, um, my, my co-author, Tal Raz, who's a brilliant guy, you know, he said, I think it's an epiphany moment. When you trigger an epiphany in someone, they gain clarity and they see things for how they are. They gain insight. They gain understanding. And it, he, he, he referred to this as triggering an epiphany moment. And at that point in time, when a human being gains clarity, I mean, the negative emotions that are holding them back tend to fall away. And then they see the situation clearly with clarity. Mm. And his job was now to get out of the way of people that were trying to block him so he could only hit one person. I wonder if that's what happened when I was talking to my mother in that story I told you before, where I, I pointed out to her, yes, they're devils, but if you act as if they can help you, I think they can, or maybe they can. And she saw, in a way, maybe something she hadn't seen before, which is she doesn't have to be burdened by what she knows to be true. She could try something else. I, I, a thousand percent, I think it was. And, and with schizophrenics in particular, they're even more difficult than everybody else because it's really hard to draw a real clear bead on what they're seeing, feeling, or thinking. Yeah, and they're really seeing and hearing things that aren't there. So you yeah. so often you can't you don't even know what what that is. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, most emotional intelligence is an educated guess based on what you can observe. And when you're dealing with a schizophrenic, as you said, you haven't got that much to observe. And I think that's really good that you say, and it's an educated guess, because when I talk about reading the other person to be able to communicate with them, what are they going through as I talk to them? I want to, I'm trying to explain something complicated. Am I getting clues from them? With the, Right now you're shaking your head, yes. I, 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 see you, I see you following me. And if I don't pay attention to that, if I see you not following me and I don't pay attention to it, then I'm just, I'm just squirting information at you and it's not landing. Yeah, and, or like if I, if I get a funny look on my face and, and you don't pay any attention to that, right? Yeah, exactly. Or I see you drifting off and looking off to the side or something like that, checking the, checking the lint on your sweater, you know. I talk about that often, but what I'm really driving at is not an exact knowledge of what's going on in your head, because I probably can never have that. The best I can have is a, a good estimate. I can make the best estimate I can of what's going on, and I can change that as I see deeper into your expression or your tone of voice and that kind of thing. So it, it interests me that you talk about it being an estimate that you're getting of the other person. And life and death is at stake when you do that. Have you ever found yourself estimating what somebody is going through and then realizing you were totally on the wrong track? Well, I, you know, I've been on the wrong track before. And, and, and a lot of it is about, you know, it almost sounds like a cliche. But the point is not that you get it right, but that you're trying to get it right. Mm. And, yeah. you know, I was in the middle of a bank robbery with hostages and, and the bank robber on the other side of the phone basically said, no, that's not it at all. Stop trying to school me. Mm. School me? What's that mean, school me? Uh, teach him, talk down to him, uh, tell him what it is, take control of him. Uh, basically, what I was saying to him was wrong. I was on the wrong track. And I was like, okay, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I I'm trying to get it right. And we got right on the right track. As, as long as it, he forgave me for being wrong, as long as I was trying to get it right. Genuinely yeah, trying to get yeah. away. That, that notion of respect for the other person really seems paramount. No matter how crazy their point of view is or how antisocial, how offensive, to be able to see where it's coming from and say it back to them sounds simple but crucial. And so undervalued. And in many cases, it might need be all we need to get through to the other side. Yeah, but it is understated. It's critical. It's absolutely critical. Are there any areas that you think this doesn't work? No. Now, there's two issues is between if it doesn't work or is it going to be enough? What, what do you mean? Well, you know, my former boss uh, was Gary Nessner. Um, he, he, in a re recent Waco miniseries, miniseries about Waco, you know, he was one of the key uh, individuals portrayed. Learned a lot from Gary. Gary used to say, we don't guarantee success. We guarantee the best chance of success. Mm -hmm. So we will always make a situation better. Always. That might not be enough. Well, this has really been interesting. I, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this. I got something that I want to ask you to do. I don't know if anybody warned you about this, but you, you seem like you're flexible. 
We are <laughs> okay. <laughs> we are, we always end the conversation with seven quick questions that I I ask you to make seven quick answers to just on the on the spur of the moment, and and it's often interesting to to face your own answer to these questions. You willing? Yeah, let's do it. It sounds okay. like fun. Okay. What do you wish you really understood? Wow. Um, uh, how to successfully transition bad governments away without destroying a country. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get bad leaders out of power? Hmm. What do you wish other people understood about you? Um. You know, uh, that despite the occasionally gruff exterior, I'm a lot softer touch than most people realize. What's the strangest question someone has ever asked you? When I was interviewing for the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department on the polygraph, one of the questions they asked was, have you ever thought about having sex with animals? <laughs> So did you go off the charts on that one? I think I was so stunned (laughs) that all the, I think all the dials and the gauges just dropped and just stopped. Like I was. So this, this question's not on the list, but did you think about that question a lot after that? (laughs) (laughs) I was afraid to, I was like, if it started sneaking in my head, I was like, ah, well, that, that's the most interesting answer to that question I think I've had yet. Um, here's, here's the next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, wow. Ask him a no-oriented question. A what kind of question? I, I, I would say, I, and I did this once. I said to uh, um, a person, I said, did it ever occur to you to not talk? <laughs> what kind of answer did you get? There was a stunned silence, and then the person went, no. <laughs> and kept talking. <laughs> but it did stop him for a while. Uh, that's good. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? Technically, the answer to that is no. In reality, you know, I'm sorry, the, 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 the serial killers that are serial child killers. Mm. Yeah. All right. How do you like to deliver bad news in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> I can do it on the phone. I'd probably rather do it in person, but I've done it on the phone. Okay. Last question: What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Um, uh, being lied to. Hmm. Chris, thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm glad I had a chance to see you on the screen because I got a lot of information out of your face. Thank you for that. Oh, that is my pleasure. Thank you very much. It was a privilege to be on with you. Thank you. It was really fun. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear goes to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Chris Voss has had an extraordinary career resolving some of the most difficult hostage situations in recent decades. 
His book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, is an exciting account of how empathy and deep listening can turn any human interaction into a positive experience. His company, the Black Swan Group, applies these principles to the world of business. You can find out more about Chris and his company at www.blackswanltd.com. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or from wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Season 2 of Clear and Vivid returns on November 13th. I'm excited about this season. I'm having fun with my guests, and I've had the chance to discover things about them I didn't expect. Their stories are powerful, and they've all faced challenges and overcome them with empathy, listening, and good communication. I talk with Mark Marin, one of the pioneers of podcasting, who has now recorded almost 900 episodes of his weekly series, WTF. This thing has saved my life. It's reintegrated me with my ability to, to empathize and listen. And I, if I'm experiencing that as the guy running the show, the people that are listening to it are experiencing that as well. From my conversation with Christian Picciolini, who was once full of hate as a neo-Nazi and today is dedicated to rescuing others from hate groups. I can sit across the table from, uh, you know, a neo-Nazi, whether he's wearing khakis and a polo or has swastika tattoos on his face, and I can let all the ideological talk just kind of fly by me. It doesn't bother me. Uh, and maybe that's because I used to say it. One of the original gurus of the tech world we now live in, Jaron Lanier, shares his dire warnings about the dangers of social media, which is increasingly, he says, populated by fake people. We have a society that's essentially enthroned the fake person. And of course, it's not its not a viable way to move forward. It's a society based on nonsense and manipulation. Facebook is designed as a behavior addiction and modification platform. That's what it does. And I'm joined by W. Kamau Bell, who explores what it means to be an American today in his CNN show, United Shades of America. I think sometimes people think, you're just there to shoot the show and you don't really care about them as a person. And for me, it's like, no, no, we're here because we care about you as a person. And I want you to feel like the show is a fun thing to do. And so it's my job to keep it fun. Season two will kick off with a special episode, a conversation with actor and activist Michael J. Fox. Michael and I have something in common. 
And the way he's dealt with in his life has been an inspiration to me and to thousands of others. You won't want to miss this. I'll also be talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson, Dr. Ruth, and many others who I'm looking forward to hearing from. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy podcasts. You can also find more details about the show on my website, alanalda.com. Thank you for being a wonderful audience. I'll be back with you on November 13th. 